Well, take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, as we continue our study through Psalm 23. I don't think I expected to preach this many sermons from Psalm 23, uh, but the truth is, I don't really know what's happening in the next few weeks and when we're going to get back together in court worship. And every single week as I open my Bible, God continues to give me new and fresh revelation, and I need it, and I'm receiving something from it. And so as that happens, I'm just preaching to you, giving these things to you as the Lord is giving them to me, and we're just kind of on the Lord's schedule. So I hope this has been encouraging to you. I am really uh, needing this and enjoying this uh, study of how the Lord leads us in the path of righteousness from Psalm 23. So turn there, take your Bibles, and we'll get there in just a moment. One of the reasons I love reading through the Old Testament is because I love the unlikely people that God chooses to use. I am reading through the New Testament in our daily Bible reading, but I'm also reading through the Old Testament as well, and it seems like every couple of pages you find another unlikely hero. One of my favorites is Gideon. I love the story of, of Gideon. The whole context there is that the people of Israel have failed to walk in faithfulness with the Lord, and as a result of that, God has allowed them to be oppressed by the Midianites, and it was really bad. The situation you have there at the beginning of the book of Judges is that the people of God were growing crops and the Midianites would come and take all of their crops once it was time for harvest. They were growing livestock and when the livestock was ready, the Midianites would come and take all of their livestock. They completely plundered the people of God. And it was so extensive that it tells us the people of God began to hide constantly and living in mountainsides and caves just so the Midianites could not find them. It was a very desperate situation. They were being bullied by multiple nations around them and the protection of the Lord was removed from them and so everyone that wanted to come after them could. That's what happens when God's protection is removed. But they cried to the Lord in their distress as they often did when God brought them to their lowest moment and God raised up a deliverer. His name was, was Gideon. Now he is an unlikely deliverer. We're told that Gideon was from the least of all of the clans, and he was the least of the least clans. So uh, he is from the least, the most unlikely people to be used, and even among that group, he was the most unlikely to be picked from the most unlikely clan. This is not the man that you would choose to deliver the people, but it's exactly who God sovereignly chose as the angel of the Lord went to him and called him out and said that he was going to use him to deliver the people. Now, there's a lot of details in there, but one of the most famous parts is that when it's time to finally go to battle with the Midianites, we're told that the Midianite army is like a swarm of locusts, meaning there's countless numbers of Midianite soldiers, massive armies that can take large nations. Now, when Gideon brought all of his people together, he mustered up about 32,000 troops, pitiful number compared to how many the Midianites had. There's no possible way, humanly speaking, 32,000 men could take on the Midianite army. But that's all they had. But then the strangest thing happened. That when all the 32,000 were gathered together, the Lord actually said this. The Lord said, the people who are with you are too many for me to beat the Midianites. Now, I love that the Lord said, that's too many, for me to beat the Midianites, talking about himself, the Lord is saying, no, I'm gonna beat the Midianites, but that's, you've got too many people. 
nothing about that makes sense. What, what do you mean you have too many people? We don't have near enough people. He says, no, no, if, if, if I'm going to beat the Midianites, that's way too many people. And so uh, through a series of events, they whittle it down to 10,000 men. Now it's 10,000 men versus all of the Midianite army. Then the Lord says, nah, that's still too many people. If you want me to beat the Midianites, that's too many people. So at the end of another series of circumstances, they're down to 300 men. Three groups of 100 men are going to take on the entire Midianite army. That's all the Lord wanted. That's all the Lord said he needed. And you think about this story, and the choosing of Gideon is such an odd choice. And whittling down the army to 300 is such a strange thing to do. And so you think, well, why Gideon? And why such a small army? And the reason is the same reason that God does things like this time and time and time again. God chose Gideon, and God whittled down the army, so that at the end of the victory, it would be very clear that Gideon and his army are not the heroes of the story. The Lord is. God chose Gideon to make sure it was clear that this was the Lord's battle and he was the hero of the story. He was the one that gained the victory. He whittled down the army to 300 men so it could be clear that it was not by their might or power or strength, but by the very presence of God that they won. That this is what God, through all of Scripture, through all of the men and women he uses, continues to do to navigate circumstances and to choose people that will be used in such a way that at the end of their lives, it's clear that God was always the hero of the story. He does it for the sake of his name. Now, you know that everything God does, he does for this reason. Everything he does and everything he has always done, he does so that his power, his grace, his kindness, his patience, his wrath, his sovereignty would always be on display. That what would be seen most in his working through his people is the reality of who he is. One way you can say it is this. God does all things for the glory of his own name. And the more you come to understand that, and the more you begin to see that in Scripture, the more you start to see it everywhere. If the Lord begins to open your eyes to the reality that God does all things for the sake of his name and all things for the praise of his glory, then all of a sudden every place you turn in Scripture and every story you start to see, well, there it is again, and, and there it is again. That this is one of the most foundational themes running all the way through Scripture, that every single thing God does, he does for the glory of his name. And we even see it in Psalm 23. Look with me at Psalm 23 as I read these first three verses. Look at it with me. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And here it is. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, we've been talking a lot about the context of Psalm 23, and we have been trying to remember that Psalm 23 is pointing us to Jesus Christ. 
We know from John 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd. So Psalm 23 is about Jesus. And Psalm 23, for us, is about what it looks like to trust and follow Jesus every day of our lives. Psalm 22 points us to our salvation, the way in which we are saved by the death, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on our behalf so that he could be forsaken, so that we could be accepted, so that our sins might be put upon him and we might be forgiven, that he might take upon himself the wrath of God, that we might receive the holiness of Christ. That's Psalm 22. And Psalm 24 is a prophetic picture of where we are headed when the king of glory comes back and establishes his kingdom on earth earth and the story is complete and right in the middle Psalm 23 which tells us the way in which we trust and follow Jesus from the moment that we are saved to the moment in which he takes us home and Psalm 23 talks about that Psalm 23 begins with that moment in which we make a declaration that we're choosing to trust and follow Jesus and all of us have to come to that moment you have to have a moment in your life in which you say okay I'm choosing Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and David does because he says the Lord is my shepherd. That is a statement of faith, confidence, trust in the Lord. And it goes all the way to the end of our lives. When verse six says, we will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. And so from the moment we receive Christ all the way to the moment the Lord takes us home to dwell with him forever, there is a path that we walk. And this is really important. I've told you that Psalm 23, verse three is the key verse of the entire chapter. This chapter exists to teach us how to walk the paths of righteousness as we trust and follow Jesus from the moment we get saved to the moment God takes us home. But there's a reminder here that this is a journey. As followers of Jesus Christ, listen, we are just that, we're followers. Jesus has invited us to choose his way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if we want to be followers of Jesus, we must walk his way. This is a path. We are on a journey. From the moment we give our lives to Christ to the moment he takes us home, we are a people who are constantly moving forward. And this is what Psalm 23 teaches us. It is very important for us to remember what it means to be a Christian is to choose the Jesus way is to choose to daily, moment by moment, walk with Jesus Christ. Wake up in the morning and say, I'm choosing the way of life. I'm choosing the way of wisdom. I'm choosing the way of peace. I'm choosing the way of holiness. I'm choosing the way of Jesus. We're a people who are moving on a pathway. And Psalm 23.3 tells us the reason in which God leads us in that pathway. It says he leads us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Now I said last week there are two motives, two reasons why the Lord leads us in this path and reasons why we should follow him in this path, and it is this. God leads us in the path of righteousness for our good and for his glory. Write that down. God leads us in the path of righteousness every day for our good and for his glory. And last week, we talked about the first part of that, that the God who created us and knows us, the God who loves you, the God who knows exactly what you need, the God who knows what is best for you, the God who knows what you need to be fulfilled and to experience real life is the God who is leading you. And it says he leads us in the paths of righteousness. The translation of that is God leads us in the right paths. 
meaning there are wrong paths. You know that. I don't, I don't have to convince you that there are wrong paths in life. And every person is either choosing the wrong path or the right path. The wrong path leads to death. The right path leads to life. And the Lord is saying this, for your own good, I'm inviting you to follow me in the right paths. I'm doing a D group right now with four high school boys. It is uh, the most fun I've had in a long time. I really enjoy this time with these young men. But one of the things I continue to emphasize to them is the same thing I'm emphasizing to my kids is that every time you obey the Lord, you are choosing what is best for you. It is always best. It is always good to follow Jesus. Every time you obey him, you say yes to him, that's the right path and it is always for your good. And so Psalm 23 says, God leads us in a path that's ultimately for our good and we have to trust that following Jesus is always for our good. But there is another motive and I would say a greater motive for the reason that God leads us in the path of righteousness and the reason we should follow. And it's this, he leads us in the path of righteousness, the right paths for his name's sake. For his name's sake. For is the reason. God, why do you lead us in the paths of righteousness? To which the Lord says, for my name's sake. Now, what, is it, what does that mean? Let's think about it for a minute. The idea of the Lord's name is a reference to his character. It is God as he has revealed himself. It is God as he truly is. Not God as we have imagined him to be or God as we have perceived him to be or God as we have created him to be in our own image. It is God as he truly is. So every time we hear something about the name of God, it is a reference to God as he really is, his self-revelation, the character of God. But it says his name's sake. Now this is a phrase used many times throughout scripture and it's synonymous with a couple of other phrases like for the praise of his glory, or for his glory, or for the praise of his name, or so that he might be praised. All of those phrases mean the same thing. For the glory of his name, that he might be made known, that he might be glorified, that he might be magnified, that he might be praised, that he might be seen. That's what it means by his name's sake. His name's sake, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his revelation, so that he might be made known. But it says this, he leads us for his name's sake. Which means this, is that the path that God is leading you on, he leads you on in such a way that as you walk the path, he gets the glory that he is the one that is magnified, that he is the one that is exalted, he is the one that is displayed. And the reason he chooses a person like Gideon and the reason he chooses that path, that strange path for Gideon to go to battle with an insignificant number of people and the reason that God has chosen you and the reason God has put you on your path is so that your life might be this massive billboard that constantly gives attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that your life might be this flashing neon sign that just says Jesus, 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 the grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. You exist as a canvas on which God is painting a picture of himself so that everyone can see it. 
And everything in your life exists for that purpose. Even the mundane. This is why in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. If you eat, if you drink, do so in such a way through the thanksgiving you give, even through the enjoyment of the food, so that somehow in that moment, God gets the attention. You exist for that purpose. And this is clarified throughout scripture. Let me read a few scriptures for you. Isaiah 43, seven says this. We have been called by his name and created for his glory. Isaiah 43, seven. You have been called by his name and you were created for his glory. You were created so that you might display his name and his character. Psalm 106, eight says this. He saved us for his name's sake that he might make his power known. So God created you for his glory and he saved you through this coming of Jesus Christ to die on your behalf, to take upon himself the sins that you committed, to take upon himself the wrath that you deserved so that through your salvation it might be his power that is made known. This is with this idea that you can be saved by your works is such an assault upon the character of God. It's so demonic and godless because to think that you can get saved by your own good works means that you want to be the hero of your own story. You want to get to heaven because you did enough when the whole message of the gospel is this. God has made it very clear that you could never do enough. Jesus had to do it for you so that in your salvation, he gets the glory, because there is no way you could save yourself. It says in Psalm 31.3, you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. So think about this, created us, called us for glory, saved us for glory, leads us for glory. And my favorite example of this is Ephesians chapter one. The book of Ephesians is so informed by theology, I'm afraid I may quote it too often, but Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, talks about all that we have because we are in Christ, because we've received Christ. That once we come into a relationship with Christ, everything that is Christ now belongs to us. We are united with Christ, means that when God the Father sees us, he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. It is a glorious truth of our union with Christ. Christ. But Ephesians 1 takes us from eternity past to eternity future. It says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says that we have been called and we have been chosen. We have been predestined. We have been adopted into the family of God. We have been redeemed. We have become inheritors of all of the promises and we have been sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that before the foundation of the world, God started a work in you and he has promised that he will finish a work from you and from beginning to end, all of this was done for this little phrase that was repeated three times in Ephesians 1 that says this, for the praise of his glorious grace. You have been adopted and redeemed for the praise of his glorious grace. You have been sealed for the praise of his glorious grace. You have been predestined for the praise of his glorious grace. It ends at that statement by simply saying all of this is for the praise of his glory. Listen to me. 
God has created you and formed you and saved you and is now leading you in the path of righteousness and will someday glorify you for all of eternity, all for the same reason, for the sake of his name, so that through you he might be made known, that he might be magnified and exalted through you. And what I love about Psalm 23, verse three, this whole chapter which shows us Honestly, very practically, the more you look at it, what it looks like to walk with Jesus Christ. It shows us how this foundational truth affects our everyday life. And what it reminds us of is this, is that God is ultimately forming your pathway, leading you in certain directions, all in order that your life might ultimately make much of him that God is orchestrating your path. He is leading you in a certain direction, all for the glory of his name. I was telling my wife Andrea this last week that I, I've spent most of my life, Christian life, trying to understand how the Christian life works. This is my greatest passion. I, I think that's why I'm loving Psalm 23 so much because I'm seeing it as such a guide to how to walk with Jesus in a way, frankly, I, I didn't before. But I love thinking about what does it look like to follow Jesus? And there, there are some foundational truths that are true of everyone. It's our discipleship pathway. If you wanna follow Jesus, you've gotta cultivate three areas. Your upward life of worship, your love for God. You've got to cultivate your inward life in community. You've gotta be around brothers and sisters in Christ and learn to love them. And you have to cultivate your outward life on mission. That's true for all of us. That's our part. We choose to trust and follow Jesus and we do that through worship, community, and mission. But I'm also beginning to see that even though there are some certain things that we do in order to faithfully trust and follow Jesus, there is no formula for our pathway. And the truth is, uh, this bothers me a little bit because I would like for them to be some certainty. I would like to be able to know that if you do this, this will happen. It just doesn't work that way. And one of the ways I know that is because every path looks incredibly different. Now, we are start at the same place. We start at that moment we choose to trust and follow Jesus. Now, getting there looks dramatically different. I would even say that moment, there's not a formula for that moment. Some people are in a church, they walk an aisle, they shake a preacher's hand, they give their life to Christ, they say a prayer, they get baptized. Some people cannot even identify that exact moment, but they know they are right now trusting and following Jesus. That moment even looks a little bit different, yet we all start at a moment. And we all end the same place. We all end dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. But from this moment to this moment, our paths look a lot different. It's not something we talk about a lot, but it is something we kind of subconsciously think about. Have you ever thought about the fact that there are some people whose paths seem much, filled with much more suffering than others? There are some people whose paths seem to include much more loneliness and despair and emotional struggles than others. There are some people whose paths have a lot more loss and disappointment than others. There's some people whose paths seem to lead to a lot more prosperity than others. Uh, a few years ago, I was eating lunch with, a, with an older man, and uh, he said to me, he said, Pastor, one of the things I realized at a very young age is that God had really only given me one gift. I said, what is that? He said, it's the ability to make money. 
and I don't know why God's given me that gift. I've just always known how to make money, and this is a man who uses that money for God's glory. He is very generous and very faithful, but he says, this is just the gift that God has given me, to which I'm thinking in my head, well, that's, that's, that's not really fair. <laughs> I mean, you know, if I had like 10% of that gift, that would be great. But what I realize is, is this is the gift that God's given us, this man, and with that comes a lot of pressure we would not understand, and a lot of difficulty we would not understand, and he's using it for God's glory, but it's hard sometimes to think, well, why, why, why does their path have so much prosperity and maybe your path has so much lacking and, and want and need? You know, we were reading our daily Bible reading. If you're reading with us, we as a church are reading through the New Testament together, five chapters a week, one chapter a day, five days a week. And that reading plan is available online. Jump in with us if you would. We're in the book of Acts right now. But last week we read John 20 and 21. And I love that little episode where after Jesus ascend, uh, was risen from the dead, about to ascend, he meets with Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Well, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? And three times they talk about that. And then Jesus tells Peter prophetically the way in which he's going to die. But then Peter sees John walking ahead. Now, John and Jesus had a special relationship. They were very close. And Peter says, well, what about him? And Jesus responds, well, what does that matter to you? You follow me. I love that, that little portion of scripture because that's us, right? That's us. Well, what about his path? What about his path? Is his path gonna be as tough as mine? You said I'm gonna die a gruesome death. What about him? We, we love comparison. We always think everyone else's path is better or easier. And when we start to feel a lot of self-pity and sorry for ourselves, and say, what about their path? What about their path? To which Jesus responds, no, 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 no. I'll take care of them. You follow me. The Lord has a distinct and different path for every single one of us. And it's hard for us to understand why my path looks so much different than theirs. And while their path seems easier, although I guarantee you it's not, it seems to be filled with so much less difficulty, although I assure you it's not. And yet mine over here seems so difficult. And when we really get into self-pity, we start to think, well, everybody has it easier than, than I do. No one's suffering the way that I do. And we just have a hard time understanding why our pathway is different to which the Lord says, no, 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 you just follow me. That God is sovereign over your path. Psalm 23 is really helpful in this because it is a constant reminder to us that God is sovereign over our path. God is sovereign over our path. He is leading us in the path of righteousness. He's leading, which means he's the one showing us where to go. And sometimes he will take us through a valley. Well, he's leading us there. And sometimes we get to a mountaintop and he's leading us there. And sometimes he takes us to a place of abundance and he's leading there, sometimes to a place of desperate need. He's leading there and he is sovereign over your path. And I can't help but to think about the fact that today is, is Mother's Day. For a pastor, this is a bit of a difficult day because I know that many of you watching are really filled with joy. It's your first Mother's Day, and it's great. Some of you have grown children. They're walking with Jesus, and they've called you today, and they're gonna love on you, and they may send you some flowers, and your just heart is overflowing. For some of you, it doesn't feel that way. But for some of you, you have not been married, but you've wanted to be married, and there's a lot of disappointment there. Some of you are married, but you're unable to have children, and there's some serious disappointment there. 
Some of you have grown children that aren't walking with the Lord. Some of you have children you haven't heard from from years. And Mother's Day is not a day filled with joy, and so you start to wonder why your path is the way it is. And what I want to say to you from Psalm 23 is this. It's got a sovereign over your path. And I also want you to know from Psalm 23 that God is sufficient for your path. I shall not want. The God who is sovereign over your path is the God who has provided everything you need for that path. And you can trust him with the path because that path is the right path. The path of following Jesus is always the right path. And God has guaranteed that even in the midst of the difficulty of the path, your destination is secure. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That doesn't mean this is not a difficult path. But yet what God is showing us from Psalm 23 is that if you are following him, he is ensuring that the path he leads you on is ultimately the path that he believes will bring himself the greatest glory. That's what Psalm 23.3 is teaching us. That God is orchestrating your pathway in such a way that through all of it, it is saying something about the nature and the character of God. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is an absolute fact that as you follow Jesus, there will be days in which it is a wonderful path that seems incredibly easy, but more days that are difficult and hard. But the one who is leading that path is trustworthy. You can follow him. He's faithful. And he knows what he's doing to orchestrate your life for his glory. Now, the more I think about that and the more I realize the foundational truth of that and the more you begin to understand that that really is it, that from creation to redemption all the way to glorification in heaven, you exist for God's glory. When you really grasp that, that changes some things about us, doesn't it? I mean, I think the first thing it changes is it reminds us that all of this life is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. I was able to do a wedding two weeks ago right here in this room. It was uh, me, the bride and the groom, and about four family members over here and four over here. Uh, Very small ceremony, but a sweet. And one of the things I always love to remind a couple in the wedding is that the ceremony is not even ultimately about them. A ceremony is a picture of the union that we have with Jesus Christ when we give ourselves to him and he lays down his life for us. So even the ceremony is really not about them. And the marriage is certainly not about him because Ephesians 5 makes it clear, God has created marriage, it was his idea, in order that a marriage might display the glory of God. That's why marriage exists. That your marriage might point people to God. So if you're a husband with a difficult wife and you love her faithfully and well, it is a really good picture of the way in which God loves difficult people, namely me and you. If you're a wife that has a husband that's not exactly what you wanted, you really preferred something a little bit different and you find yourself disappointed, you know what? This isn't about you. It's about God putting you in that situation so that the way in which you would respond would bring glory to God. And not only will you miss God's best by resenting your spouse, by distancing yourself from them, not only will that build up resentment in your heart and bitterness in your heart, which will affect everybody else, it gives you a life that fails to exist for the purpose God created it for, and that is so that you might give him glory. What's happened in that moment is you've become all about you. This is not about you. All of your talents, 
all of your gifts, every dollar you have, every room in your house, every single relationship, every child, every couple without a child, every bit of this is about something bigger than you. It's about God's desire to make himself known through you. He's sovereign over your path and he wants you to embrace the path for his glory. I think it's also important to remember that there is no conflict between our good and God's glory. As I was studying this, there seemed at first to me a conflict. Well, last week you said this is for my good and now you said it's really hard but it's okay because it's for God's glory. No, 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 listen, these don't conflict. As a matter of fact, they work in perfect harmony. Because here's the deal, if I follow Jesus and my main motive is for my good, then in doing that, I'm giving God the glory because what I'm saying is I believe Jesus is better. I believe following Jesus is my best good. So following Jesus for your own good gives glory to the Lord. But they also don't conflict because when you surrender your life to live for God's glory, that is the place of goodness and blessing. That is the place of life. Church, listen to me, that's it. That is the life in which God has created you to live. And it all comes down to this. And listen, one more minute and we'll be done. It comes down to this. Are you willing to surrender your life to that ultimate end that God might be magnified through you? It seems like a very difficult surrender. Lord, I surrender my life to be used for your name and your glory. I don't want this to be all about me. I want it to be about you. And so, Lord, I take every talent, every gift, every relationship, all of my marriage, and I say, God, here it is. Use it for your name. I want to be led in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. It is a radical departure from self-centeredness. When you say, not, not to us, Psalm 115, verse one, but to your name be the glory. When you say with John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he must increase. God wants you to make a radical departure from self-centeredness and self-consumption to a place in which you are fully surrendered to your life being lived for God's name. And listen, if you come to that place where you were surrendering every morning to God's path, saying, God, wherever you wanna go, whatever you wanna do, I exist for you just as long as your name is made known, your name is made known through me, that's all I want, then what happens is your story becomes like Gideon's, an unlikely person who brings incredible glory to God. And when the whole story is looked at, one thing is clear. Jesus was the hero of the story. May it be true of my life and yours. Let's pray together this morning.